welcome to the Web3 for Good podcast. I'm your host, Camilla Perkis-White, a futurist and digital brand strategist who's worked with some of the world's biggest businesses to help drive impact and purpose in the online world. Throughout this podcast, I'll be hosting a series of intimate conversations with leaders in Web3 in hope to inspire us all to build a Web3 for good. In this week's episode, we welcome Hera Hussein, founder of Chen, a global nonprofit that creates resources on the web to address gender-based violence. We discuss the rising cases in abuse in the metaverse, but what we as builders, investors, and users can all do to build a Web3 for good, eliminating gender-based violence online. Hera has collaborated with some of the world's most iconic brands to help build safe spaces, And this conversation will leave you with your eyes wide open on the opportunity to build these safe virtual spaces for all. Radio, let's get on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Web3 for Good podcast. We're on a mission to uncover the greatest innovators, thinkers, and creators building the next reiteration of our online lives. Today, I'm very excited to invite into the studio Hera Hussein, founder of Chen, a global nonprofit that creates resources on the web to address gender-based violence. Chen's multilingual resources designed with, not for survivors, have reached more than half a million people. Raised in Pakistan and living in the UK, Hera knew from early on that she wanted to tackle violence against women. She believes in using the power of open source technology, trauma-informed design, and hope-filled framing to solve the world's pressing issues. Hera is an Ashoka Fellow and was on the Forbes 30 Under 30, hello, (laughs) MIT Technology Review's Innovators Under 35 and European Young Leader List 2020. Welcome, Hera. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So look, we are talking today about harassment and abuse. This is not limited to the metaverse. It is widespread. It affects all platforms. But as the metaverse does continue to develop and expand, it is really important for us as developers, communities, investors to take proactive measures to prevent and address incidents. So that's when I bring you in today. And we're very, very privileged to have you. And we want to discuss with you how we can build a Web3 for good by playing our part to eliminate gender-based violence online. Wouldn't that be great? Before we dive into that, Hera, I'd just love to get to know you a bit more. Can you share with us your personal journey into building Chen and some of the extraordinary successes and impact that you've had? Yes, I'd love to. So, you know, I grew up in Pakistan and I was very aware of just being a woman and moving through life. Life was very different for you. In my family, I grew up in a very happy family. I could really feel the impact of gender-based violence around me. So when I got to the UK, you know, I always had that thought that I was going to do something about it. So I came to Glasgow Free University and I got really involved in entrepreneurship and sort of the tech startup scene in Glasgow, Edinburgh, and then also in London. So after graduating, I, you know, that idea was still bubbling in my head about I want to do something about it. And and throughout my university, I had tried to start up uh, different kind of businesses, like ethical fashion businesses, something, you know, like just something that I felt like I could do around gender-based violence. Uh, But nothing really stuck. 
applied for lots of pitch competitions and even got to the final stages. And then, well, by chance, I was, um, you know, I used to work for tech startups and volunteer a lot for social enterprises, which, if people don't know, are types of uh, nonprofit organizations which can generate revenue, but they reinvest all the revenue back into the community business. I was helping two friends close to me get out of abusive marriages. And it, it struck me that there just weren't resources online at all. All of the, you know, helplines and services were in person. And the people I was helping were not in a position to, to go there. They didn't want to pick up the phone. As young women, it was so natural to go to the web and turn to the web for answers. So once I helped one of my friends sort of get out of that abusive marriage, I went through a lot of research with her to kind of figure out what her rights were and where she can go for help, often pretending to be her on the phone because she didn't want to do that. And everything was very phone-based in the UK. So I decided to start Chen. And it was supposed to be just for women from Pakistan and in Pakistan. And then when I launched, it kind of went everywhere. Mm. And that's basically what Chen does. Chen is now a global uh so a resource hub for survivors, uh, which helps them identify what kind of abuse they're going through, how to heal from it. But on top of that, in building that sort of feminist tech approach in the last 10 years, when Chen started, it was like one of the few organizations doing this. And now it's amazing that there's so many. But yeah, in, that, in those 10 years, we've learned a lot about how do you mitigate some of those risks by building better. And so... Jen does a lot of research around it. I do a lot of uh, writing around our trauma-informed design principles. Also, like, how do we create safer communities online? How do we create more accountable systems? So all this conversation around how do we not just, you know, tackle the abuse that is in online spaces right now, but also how do we create online spaces that are not going to subject marginalized genders and people to more of those risks is very close to me. Incredible. <laughs> uh, I, I'm always stopped for words that the journey that you've been on and continue to be of such a high relevance and a need to the industries that they're ahead of us. I grew up in a very different world, but... When I was reflecting ahead of this call, I was remembering back to my era of an MSN chat rooms and yes. forums. <laughs> I got my first computer when I was six years old. I won it in the school raffle. That's amazing. <laughs> so I had access like to internet super early. It was like the dial up, but I was still in primary school. You know, I was like under the age of 12. And we would often find ourselves, you know, in forums being invited for cyber sex. Absolutely. Uh, I recall some pretty suggestive language from males, most of the time even sometimes who I knew, everyone on MSN, who felt they could speak to me in like highly sexualized ways at a very, very young age. And so I'm not surprised, but I am deeply saddened that there is now such a high risk of harassment and abuse as we enter an even more immersive world online. And so I wanted to do a bit of research kind of to really understand what cases have been out there. And I think what's even sadder is actually so much is not a case. You know, nobody comes forward and talks about the abuse they had. Because As it's become I, a part of parcel of being online. Yeah. You know, it becomes normalized. You just think, well, of course, this is going to happen. So, yeah, that is one of the reasons we don't have as much evidence as we would 
because it's become part of internet culture. Yeah, and I think it probably always has. You know, when I when I recall back to any experience I've had with the internet. Yeah, it's, it's there. It's, it's always there. there. Yeah. I mean, I've been airdropped dick pics on the tube. It's oh, like God. it is it is at every level of the internet. And when you look at kind of this gaming and immersive worlds, there were some key ones that stood out for me. So 2014, Gamergate controversy involved allegations of harassment and abuse against women in the gaming industry, including gaming developers and journalists, leading to a broader discussion of sexism and misogyny in gaming culture. 2016, virtual reality game Quiver made headlines when a female player accused the gamer's developer of sexually assaulting her during a virtual reality session. 2018, there are reports of harassment and abuse against female players in an online multiplayer game that you may have all heard of called Fortnite, uh, which includes incidents of sexual harassment, rape threats, and other forms of abusive behavior. 2019, we see Twitch streamer Alinity face online harassment and death threats after accidentally showing, God forbid, her breast during a live stream. And 2020, another kind of high-profile one, which was World of Warcraft, incidences of playing being subjected to sexually explicit comments, unwanted advances, and even rape threats again. Some female players even reported feeling unsafe while playing the game and felt the company's policies were not sufficient to protect them from harassment and abuse. Now, I don't know if anyone else caught the kind of red thread through all of that, but that was all women. That was all women being caught in horrific scenarios and not being supported by the infrastructure, the policies, and the creators of these environments. Do you have any insight about why abuse is so high in these worlds for women? Yes, and in fact, I would like to go back to two things. One is um, you mentioned dick pics, which is a really good one to pick up on. And the other one is just reflecting on what is it about the online space which makes it easier for people to abuse than in offline spaces? So let's start with the second one. Gender-based violence, misogyny, patriarchy, these are all systems that we experience in the offline world, the physical world. So it is natural that these are also going to happen online. The difference is, and the really big difference is, that oftentimes there are really significant consequences of doing those actions in the offline world. So as an example, if, and, and I'm saying that with a big caveat because we know how badly rape survivors are treated, how badly domestic violence survivors are treated, pretty much across most countries in the world. But still, if someone makes an allegation of, you know, that someone flashed them, flashing is a really, really high risk activity. If you flash someone in a public, no one's going to think it's appropriate. Someone will say something. There's a high risk to the flasher. Their police knows, you know, which which form of like indecency that is. You'll get caught up on it. You know, there's there's a lot of consequences for the person who's flashing. Online, however, it's just seen as, oh yeah, well, no one's gonna do anything about it. So the barriers to doing that sort of behavior are, you know, very, very low. Similarly, like if you are walking down the street and someone shouts a racist slur at you. Um, or a sexist slur at you, you are, you know, there's a good chance someone will, you know, someone will say something back to you. And it's going to be, again, a risky activity, even if you don't face any consequences from the police, you know, it's kind of not appropriate to do so. Whereas in the online space, like people feel so comfortable to send death threats and rape threats and with their with accounts that have their faces showing. There, it really ties back to this idea of bodily autonomy and also the idea that men feel like they have a right to 
women and women's presence and that they are allowing women into their spaces. So gaming is no different, you know. In the gaming world, which is a predominantly male sort of world, I feel like what I hear from female gamers is that it feels like they're not allowed that same level of respect that others do and that they're not part of the bigger community. They're like, you know, the moment... And they're seen as like, they're always the ones that have these problems. It's because, yeah, they are the ones that have these problems. So it's not their problem. It's actually a male problem. And men have to take responsibility for it. Women are not sending dick pics to each other, you know? Men are. So really, it's not really a women's problem. It is a like male problem. So the responsibility of action really falls on men and the creators of these spaces. They've created environments where they're allowing users to talk to each other and they've completely ignored the fact that the same behaviors that happen offline can happen online, but even worse, and they've created no consequences for that. So let's like come back there, right? Because there is a fundamental societal problem, which I wish this podcast could change, but I'm not too sure if we'll crack it. But I'm hoping that there are some listeners here who are the builders of these spaces. So let's have a little reflection on that. How could we enable them? Like, How have they not taken learnings from the internet that's happened in the last 50 years into applying design to these new worlds. What's gone wrong? So many things. I think in, when we did a research on this, we produced a report called Orbits, which is, you know, I, I highly recommend everybody reads. It really looks at, it takes the design approach to rooting out gender-based violence and tackling gender-based violence in tech spaces. One of the things we found was that while there has been a focus on making teams more diverse, the actual looking at whether the powerful stakeholders in an organization are diverse or not, that there's like no thought to it. So if the people who are creating these games have some staff that are women, that's not really enough. Do they have power to make decisions? Are they really your equals in the design process? Are you even thinking about... The way I think about this is no one likes talking about abuse. When you're creating a product, you're so full of excitement that's the last thing on your mind. And I completely get it. You know, if I'm creating a tool and Chen does produce technology, but of course, because of the way we work, we think about it. But I understand that feeling, you know, you're creating something that people can have fun with, people, you know, will enjoy. You don't want to think about how it can go all wrong. But really, you still have to, you know, even though it's not a fun conversation, it's really important that we do that because it's about creating responsible spaces and design features can create culture within those communities. So you know, if Reddit had started with that in mind, I think Reddit communities, which are really such amazing places for information, so many interesting insights that come out of it. But the toxic sort of culture could have been dissipated, you know, if it started well. And I think it's taking that idea that it's not an extra. It is not an outlier. This is the foundation of building products is that we need to think about safety. We need to think about how we create a harmony how do we tell our users, not just thinking of accountability, which is really important, what happens if something goes wrong, but also like how can we encourage our users to make the right choices? How do we tell them this is the kind of behavior that's not allowed? This is not what the platform is for. And, you know, really think about that. A really great example for Bumble, for example, of using good design features is I always give this example is of their auto blur feature. Their AI detects if any image sent from one user to the other might have any intimate body part in it, and it blurs it. You know, they understand sexting is a part of dating, right? But they also understand that a high level of their users, I think 54% when they researched it, of young women on their platform were getting unsolicited intimate images from men. So what they're doing is they're saying, you can still send these things to each other, but with consent. And if you're going to send them without 
consent. We're, we're just blurring everything. And it's up to you to unblur it, the person who's receiving it. And then if you report the person who's the sender that they have sent it, then they will take action against the user. I think this is a really interesting way of doing that. And then they open source that tool. I don't understand why other tech companies and gaming platforms aren't just using that feature. Just, just talking about intimate images, for example, uh, around genitals. But there are so many other things you can do. You know, Twitter and I think Twitter especially and Facebook afterwards have had a very public process around inaccurate information, around politics, around abuse. They both have dragged their heels on it and they had to take action when it finally, you know, was something that was hurting their shareholders. But we know that their experiments have worked well. And many of the platforms are doing uh, behavioral insights around prompting users to not use curse words, prompting users. So before you post, before you send, are you sure you want to send this? And they've had good sort of results from that. So there's pockets of good stuff happening, uh, even if it's very late. So I think it's about like making it a priority and not seeing it as something that's a downer or an outlier. But knowing that, you know, it's your responsibility to create a space where all kinds of users can thrive. Why should women not be able to participate in games? Why should they not be able to participate in virtual spaces? You know, they should be able to do all of that. And it's our responsibility to create environments where abuse doesn't happen. And if it happens, we have a very good way of dealing with it in a timely manner. Absolutely. And as we reach Web3 and people are developing for the first time, there shouldn't be a reaction, right? We shouldn't be waiting for things to go so wrong, to build tech. Absolutely. The start is the it. best place. It's to start better is, is, is the best position you can be in. It's setting the ground rules for your product, your community, your service. And, you know, it also helps you create that feedback loops with your users and your community. So you could be developing features and then really opening it up for like feedback from the people using your platform saying, we've been trying this to make, you know, our environment better, safer, more productive. What is your experience? Like really opening up that conversation with users. I feel like many businesses don't do this. And it's such a lost opportunity because if someone likes your product, they want it to be even better. You know, they're invested in it. So why not? start that conversation. Agreed. And also this power of open source. You know, I think the Web3 community overall is really coming forward with this open source mentality. And so why not work together for this greater good? You know, technology doesn't need to be built new every time. Yeah. We can we can find these reiterations. I'm very inspired by leaders like yourself who can give these infrastructures. But I think you're inherently right it needs to start at the beginning in the room. And we are in a fantastic opportunity in technology right now to do that with Web3 because Absolutely. it is the formation of new. Oh, hi there. Now, I won't interrupt you for long, but did you know that Web3 for Good offers masterclasses for your brand, agency, or conference? As a highly sought after keynote speaker and workshop host, I'm proud to be acknowledged as one of the top female speakers in digital marketing. I've been very busy the last few months hosting events at some of the world's most iconic brands, sometimes even popping by for lunch and learn. Don't worry, I bring the pizza. These talks uh, will always be jargon-free. They'll educate everyone from beginner to expert. We focus on what is Web3, what opportunities does it bring, and how can we be purpose-driven to build a Web3 for good. And of course, customized masterclasses can always be built for you. Every session will also include an NFT drop. That's right, we ensure that everybody leaves on chain. 
If you'd like to know more or work with me, Camilla Perkins-White, then head over to web3forgood.net or you can just email me direct web3forgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Radio, back to the show. As I guess any listeners that we might have who are entering virtual worlds, which I hope there are many, but if someone does experience abuse or harassment, do they have any rights? And where and how should they report it? They most likely have rights within that platform itself and the sort of code of conduct of that platform. Most platforms now, I would be shocked if one didn't have it. Those code of conduct should have an option for how they can report that to the creators. What I will not have, and this is where I think creators need to do a much better job, is more transparency around what happens next, how are their complaints handled, and providing agency to the person who experienced it to be able to decide how they want it to be dealt with. These are things that don't usually happen, and that's really important. In the legal sense, really, depending on the country you're in, it's going to look very different. Most places do not recognize cybercrime in the same way, unless it's something like, you know, stealing or sharing someone's intimate images, even things like rape threats and death threats, which are probably the oldest forms of gender-based harassment, aren't something that police used to take it seriously because they were like, it's just someone in their placement sending this message. You don't need to worry about it. But we know that that is serious. You know, online stalking and offline stalking are connected. And we know that it can be very serious. And also it's about correcting people and telling them that that kind of behavior has consequences. You can't just do it. So I think in that sense, there are limited options. But in some countries, there are new laws coming into place, including in the UK, where there is an online harms bill um, that's in Parliament right now. And in Australia, they've brought in a series of legislations around online abuse. Uh, And similarly, in the US, there is more and more states are doing things certainly around online abuse. In the EU, there is a legislation around violence against women that specifically names online violence. So I think that governments are waking up to this late, but I'm an optimist, so I like that there are also legal remedies. I cannot like stress this enough. Irrespective of what governments are doing and what law enforcement doing, as creators of spaces and technology, it is absolutely your right to have really robust processes for dealing with that. And also prevention processes, like we said about an education and behavioral prompts, all of those things need to happen. Metas, you know, the very famous case where one of the women, I think it was a journalist, she went into when Meta launched its uh, metaverse and found that she was groped uh, by several men within minutes of entering that space. Their response was, let's build a bubble around people so you can no longer come near someone, which maybe it works. But like, I just this idea that they hadn't thought about it, despite having Facebook, having what Instagram and like, just the response was, yeah, no one is going to come near each other. No, bubbles are out. Like, <laughs> bubbles are out. We did enough bubbles in 2020. There are no more bubbles to be had. We need people to behave correctly. Yeah, and, and, and face consequences if they don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely agreed. I think this raises a really good point. You know, if you're a builder, you do not lead legislation. You need empathy and you need yeah. respect for your, for your users. In fact, you should be supporting legislation, which is around bringing more accountable systems. Again, I go back to the example of some of the dating apps that did work around both uh, sharing of intimate images in the UK and the US. Bumble did some work on it. And uh, in, the, in Australia, other platforms did work on it. To Meta's credit, they've actually been working a lot on 
intimate images as well. And they've like built a coalition. So that is, you know, they're doing something around it. So they've brought in together platforms and civil society organizations to try to tackle this cross-platform you know, whether you're a small creator, a medium creator, larger, there are definitely things you can do, even if it's just talking to other industry partners and your peers and sort of collectively, you know, doing things around this or just making your platform safer. Absolutely. And I think as users as well, you know, before we're entering a space, do we know where we go when we need help? Do we know how to report that? It's not just an angry tweet. You know, there needs to be a really clear line of communication into the creators at, at all times. Well, look, I'm glad to hear that there are some people paving the way. And I think, you know, ultimately we need to ensure that when we enter these commercial spaces, that they are being held responsible as well. But let's get down to it. Let's get down now to building a Web3 for good, because it's a big job ahead of us. And so I want to ask you these questions. What will it take to build a Web3 for good to eliminate gender-based violence online? Are there sort of like a top three steps that we need to be thinking to take? I would say, you know, learn from what we already know about online gender-based violence and apply those learnings in your product design. Second, I would say, introduce participatory processes so that you are talking to your users all the time and creating remedies and like iterating on safer spaces and policies. And number three, I would say, is is holding yourselves accountable to making these changes, not just in your products and services, but within your sector, within your industry, um, really creating change on a larger scale, contribute to the larger scale. Fantastic. And tell us, what great tools are out there that can support the builders? This is such a great time to be talking about technology and ethics. There's so many interesting organizations doing work on this, including our own. So I mentioned our Orbits report, which lists lots of different issues with technology-facilitated abuse and how to mitigate them. We have a set of eight design principles, and we've given examples of how to apply them throughout the product lifecycle. There's also a code of uh, practice around violence against women that uh, the End Violence Against Women Coalition in the UK have brought on. The eSafety Commission in Australia have their own set of guidelines. The Information Commissioner uh, in the UK have brought a design code for designing online services around children um, and making those safer in the US. Actually, globally, there is the design justice movement, which looks at a different way of building using design for good. There's also the UNFPA have uh, a guidelines that they've published about a week ago, which is all around making tech products safer for women and girls around the world. So there's a lot of things, really. There's no excuse <laughs> not to go out there and read and learn and build better. Agreed. Build better, for sure. So with that in mind, what questions should investors be asking so many questions. <laughs> I think investors have such an important part to play. Just like, you know, a decade ago, investors weren't asking questions around racial discrimination, weren't asking questions about labor rights um, or sexual harassment. And now they're kind of in the position where like, really, we really should have been doing that work. And now they are paying attention to it. Really in the same vein, I think investors need to ensure that the companies that they are partnering with, that they're supporting, are have really good trust and safety teams, have um, you know accountable and transparent processes around how they deal with this at different stages. How are they building? How are they involving um, 
you know, women and girls um, users in their design? How are they talking to experts? What kind of steps they're taking to make their products safer? What happens when things go wrong? And the reporting that the investors get to see how the company is doing, it must have, you know, a section around like safety. I think it's so important. And it's something that companies should be proud of about that, you know, we are producing these like transparent reports around how our community is doing and what we're doing to make it even better. So investors have a huge responsibilities. I think for anyone who is running uh, boot camps or startup accelerators, again, if you can have sessions around business models and marketing, why can't you have a, you know sessions on preventing abuse and creating safer spaces? We can look at the framing of it. It's, it's not all about harm reduction. It's also about how do we create space for women and girls to be the full consumers of your product and community. So it's about like really thinking about it less as a problem that you have to deal with. It's about all the good and the opportunities you create for people to enjoy the great work that you're doing. Absolutely. And that's the thing, developing this space for good, for greater good, for all, you know, is, is where we're going to see the most success in the future. The final one I want to ask is what we should be demanding as the end user. We need to be demanding more engagement, more accountability, transparency, and more stake. All platforms care about the users. It's just about how much do they care about them. And I think that it's up to us to, as users, as community members, to really, you know, use that collective force to demand that the products that we love and the companies that build them are doing their utmost best to make our experiences, you know, safer, better, more equal and sustainable, all those things. I think there's a lot of power in collective action. Right, Hera, we're going to come into the final section of the episode, which is share the good vibes, 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 <laughs> where we love to give shout outs to other people in the space who are doing exceptional things. So you define yourself uh, as a feminist technologist, which I absolutely love. I like to call myself a feminist in sequence. <laughs> <laughs> but let's give a shout out. Three people in this space that we should be following, feminist technologists. Love it. So the first one uh, person I chose is my very close friend, Nika Dad, who is a Pakistani feminist technologist. She is a pioneer when it comes to privacy and safety. Um, she created the world's first cyber harassment helpline in Pakistan. She is also sits on the oversight board for Meta. So she is a real trailblazer doing some really hard work in a very hard country. And she's really worth following because she shares a lot of her thinking around privacy, safety, anti-surveillance technology and just gender-based violence. So she's one. The second person I chose is uh, Caroline Sinters. She is an artist and technologist. And she loves working with, on feminist tech. She's one of those people who started looking at UX as a tool for curbing and tackling and discouraging harassment. So Caroline does really interesting work. Please follow her on her Twitter. And she also has an art residency at the moment. So she's always doing really interesting things and pointing out issues. And the last one is my friend Catherine uh, Cosmides, who is the uh, was a survivor and founder and CEO of uh, Garbo, which is online background check that uh, Tinder uses. So that means that you, you know, she's making it easier for people to see if the person they're going on a date with 
has had a history of domestic violence or sexual assault or or child abuse. So it's a really powerful tool and she's you know using her experience to create that safety thing which a lot of young people are looking for and want to have that kind of information. So yeah, these are my three feminist psychologists. They are outstanding and guys we're going to throw all their details in the show notes as well so you can have a listen. Hera Hussein, it has been an absolute honor to share the mic with you today and talk about this incredibly important powerful and I would like to think optimistic future that we can build for a web three for good to eliminate violence for all. Before we go, where can we find you? What can you plug for all of our listeners? You can find me and Chen everywhere on social media. So the Chen's website is www.chayn.co and we're on social media as at chayn.hq everywhere. Me personally, again, I'm just really boring and I am just my name everywhere um, as I was saying I also write a blog and um, have a newsletter where I share my thoughts and uh, I think for everyone listening Orbit's report is a really good one to look at and if you are also working with content moderators to make your places safer we're about to launch a new program which is all about helping content moderators with their vicarious trauma or secondhand trauma if they're being exposed to a lot of graphic content so that might also be something you're interested in. So yeah, follow Chen and see what we're up to. And you can find me, Camilla Perkis White, on Twitter at, at Camilla on Chain, or find us anywhere, web3forgood.net or camillaperkiswhite.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Web3 for Good. As you know, we're on a mission to uncover the greatest innovators, thinkers, and creators building the next reiteration of our online lives. But I cannot do this alone. So wherever you're listening to your podcast today, I'm going to ask you a huge favor. Hit that subscribe button. And while you're there, why not leave us a review? Did you know that is like the best thing you can do to support a podcaster? And I'm sure you know, in the world of technology, let alone podcasting, it's heavily male-dominated. So as an independent female podcaster, I'm going to need your help so we can all together build a Web3 for good. If you want to learn more about Web3 for good, or me, Camilla Perkis-White, or advertise your business on the podcast, just go to web3forgood.net. Or you can email us at web3forgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Radio, see you next time.